taken to wearing stock shirts and his boots stay shine. Keeps that old truck neat as a pin. The picture gazes down from his visor at an empty dash where a spit cup should have been. Hey, running buddy, what'll you say to a 12 pack? Hey, running buddy, what you say to Good morning, good morning, good morning. A little Max Stalin running buddy kicking things off for us on the Lone Star Outdoor Show powered by. Dallas Safari Club. Man, it is great to be here with you today. I'm Cable Smith. Thank you so much for tuning in as we are talking hunting, fishing, the great outdoors, and all that implies. Hope everybody had a wonderful Thanksgiving. I know I did. I made it into the duck blind with Bell two times last week and then took Henry out to the lease. Uh, we shot a hog and a coyote. Uh, didn't see a single deer, though. Wind was whipping about 20 miles per hour and they just didn't want to come out and play. But we had a heck of a good time making memories to last a lifetime. You can't beat father-son time in the great outdoors. And we've got a great show lined up for you today. So, you know what to do by now. Pull up that stool a little closer to the old campfire. Pull yourself another cup of coffee out of that beat-up old Stanley Thermos. Because we are ready to rock and roll. And off the top, uh, President Trump signed a bill here over the last week or so called the PACT Act. Basically making it uh, a felony to torture or crush animals on video, right? Seems like common sense would say that mm, that's pretty sick and twisted. Uh, but there are a lot of folks who are wondering if this will affect hunting. You know, a lot of times these laws are loosely written where there is room for interpretation. Uh, so let's find out. Uh, I've asked... Brian Lynn, the VP of Marketing for Sportsman's Alliance, a great organization, always on top of things when it comes to these anti-hunting, anti-trapping uh, pieces of legislation that are introduced across the country. So what does the PACT Act mean for hunters and trappers, if anything? Uh, Brian will break that down. Plus, we'll take a look at how anti-hunting bills originate on the West Coast make their way across the country, and then end up back on the West Coast. It's it's certainly an interesting phenomenon, but, uh, yeah, they all start in that cesspool of a state known as California. And if you are a Californian listening to this, well, God bless you, because, my God, I can't imagine living in that dump of a state. And it's too bad, too, because California might be the most beautiful state in the entire country. It is absolutely stunning, and they've got it all. Mountains, the beach, I mean, you name it. It's there, and uh, it's truly sad what's happened to it. But anyway, I could go on about California all day, <laughs> so let's not. Let's keep things moving in the right direction. At the bottom half of the hour, we will be joined by First Light's Whitetail product line manager, Greg Farrell, a lifelong whitetail hunter. And we're going to get into those big bucks that literally go nocturnal and just drive hunters insane. Uh, I've got one right now that, uh, man, he's just, uh, well, to be honest, he's kicking my hiney. And I am having a hell of a time seeing the light at the end of the tunnel. <laughs> Maybe some of y'all can relate. Uh, I know Greg can. Plus, we will talk about First Light's whitetail-specific line, something that uh, they've really put a lot of research and development into over the past couple of years, and they will continue to do so moving forward. And uh, Greg is overseeing that entire product line. So 
some cool stuff coming up on the gear side of things from First Light as well. That is what's on the docket for today. Couple other things to mention. Let's do a quick giveaway. I've got a Lone Star Outdoors show First Light Cypher cap and a First Light sticker. Let's just do this. Uh, email the word First Light. Well, it's two words, but email First Light to Lone Star Outdoors Show at gmail.com. We'll get you entered into this week's giveaway. Also, uh, if you want to purchase one of the hats, I've got a deal going right now. Uh, one of the First Light Lone Star Outdoors Show Cypher hats, a can of Pyro Putty, which is a backcountry fire starter. We really can use it anywhere. Uh, I absolutely love that stuff. It'll light when it's wet. It'll light wet wood, give you a nice warm fire, and then a, a Lone Star Outdoors Show sticker. So the cap, Pyro Putty, and sticker, they are 35 bucks shipped to your door. Shoot me an email if you want to buy one. I think I have about 20 left. So yeah, just uh, shoot me an email, Lone Star Outdoors Show at gmail.com. Of course, you can also message me on Instagram or the Book of Faces. Let's take a quick break. Coming up next, we'll take a look at some of the current anti-hunting legislation. Oh, also, uh, Pennsylvania decided to step out of the dark ages. We'll expand on that after the break. Brian Lynn of Sportsman's Alliance joins us next on the Lone Star Outdoor Show. Still heard him calling sweet Maria. Can you hear me? Muffled echoes up and down the frozen canyon walls. Maria, how I love you. In the market for a compact track loader, then check out the Bobcat Advantage, where Bobcat track loaders squared off against other brands in a variety of tests and challenges. Whether you're looking for performance advantages, uptime protection, or quality design, Bobcat compact track loaders are the best-built machines in the industry. But don't take our word for it. Watch the videos at BobcatAdvantage.com or see Bobcat machines in person at Bobcat of Dallas and Louisville, Fort Worth, Cedar Hill, Longview, and now McKinney. Visit BobcatOfDallas.com or call 469-586-0000. I'm Craig Boddington. I'd like to invite you to become a member of Dallas Safari Club, one of the world's leading hunting and conservation organizations. As a member, you'll receive Game Trails magazine, a monthly newsletter, and invitations to our monthly meetings and special activities. Join Dallas Safari Club, an international organization based in Dallas, supporting hunting and conservation worldwide. For more information, call 800-9-GO-HUNT or visit our website at www.biggame.org. Are you tired of waking up at 2 a.m. to fight public land skybusters? Cable here for Three Crow Outfitters and their new North Texas Duck Club, which consists of over 3,000 acres and 40 water bodies throughout Ellis and Navarro counties. Three Crow does the planting, provides metal blinds, decoys, and posts a weekly scouting report. All you and your buddies do is reserve the property you want and show up to hunt. This opportunity is limited to 10 four-person memberships, so for the waterfowling experience of your lifetime, go to threecurl.com or call 214-641-8097 today. Oh, Gary Stewart, Honky Tonkin, bringing us back on the Lone Star Outdoor Show. Cable Smith here with you today. Thanks for dropping by. I do appreciate it. Uh, we've got some interesting stuff to get into concerning 
legislation aimed at you and I, hunters, trappers, and sportsmen and women alike. And we'll do that with Sportsman's Alliance uh, Vice President of Marketing, Brian Lynn, here momentarily. But before we get into that interesting stuff, this segment brought to you by Vortex Optics and the new Fury HD Range Finding Binocular. Sometimes less is more. That's the case with the Fury. It's two pieces of equipment, rangefinder and binos, combined into one. So that's only one piece of gear you're taking into the field instead of two. I've got the 10x42s. Absolutely love them. I know you'll love yours as well. Check them out. It's the Fury, and you can find it at vortexoptics.com. All right. Uh, well, with that being said, let's bring on our first guest today. Like I said, He's the VP of Marketing for Sportsman's Alliance. It's my pleasure to welcome Brian Lynn back to the show. Thank you. Great to be here, man. Thank you. Absolutely. Hope you guys had a great Thanksgiving. And I tell you what, uh, I'm finally cool with folks putting those Christmas lights up now. <laughs> exactly. That early <laughs> Christmas decorating has to come to a stop, man. Oh, killing me, man. Killing me. I mean, I, I one, love One uh, at a time. Yeah, I love Christmas. It's my favorite holiday, but i got to get through Thanksgiving first before yeah. I can get into the Christmas spirit. Let's get through Halloween and then Thanksgiving, <laughs> then go to Christmas, you know. Yeah. Oh, I'm ready so to start ce celebrating St. Patrick's Day now. Yeah, uh, I had my kids, <laughs> I've got my kids trained because we'll, we'd drive around and anyone with Christmas lights up before Black Friday, they'd point at them and be like, violators! <laughs> nice! <laughs> You're raising them right. That is correct, <laughs> yep. Um, well, hey, you know, we've got a lot going on, as always, in the, the hunter's rights realm. Most notably, Pennsylvania is uh, stepping out of the dark ages. So I'll let you expand a little bit on what uh, what I'm referencing there. Yeah, Sunday hunting. There's uh, only a couple of states left that have a near total ban on Sunday hunting. And for those of us from the rest of the country, you're like, what the hell is this all about? Right. <laughs> and, you know, it's these old blue book laws. This one actually has been on the books since, oh, 1600 and something before, you know, anything was anything around here. Right. Um, 337 years, they took Sunday off, couldn't hunt, you know. And uh, whether it's religious, probably most likely, you know, yeah. oh, basis sure. or whatever it is. Folks in Pennsylvania haven't been able to hunt on Sunday. I mean, forever, imagine you, know? you work Monday through Friday, and then you get to hunt on Saturday. For let's just say for the average guy, you know. Uh, yeah, that's insane. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know, and, and it, it, Pennsylvania is one of those huge hunting states. It's one of the biggest, biggest uh, hunting states there is as far as number of hunters. Mm -hmm. And you know, you're cutting your time in half. And, you know, possibilities of anything are all cut in half. And we're at a time now where we are losing hunters. This is not something we need to be doing. We need to be doing everything we can to make it easier to get into the woods to show people and enjoy success and everything else that goes with it. And so, you know, it's something we've been working on for years along with National Shooting Sports Foundation, NRA, uh, NWTF, different groups to try to get this opened up. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and whatever reasons, it would get shot down and stopped. And this year, uh, you know, we thought we had a complete pass where every Sunday would be open and then political wrangling and everything else took place. So it's kind of a partial opening now. Huh. It's opened. Uh, it's going to be opened up on three Sundays, hmm. uh, one during gun deer season, one during archery season, and then another Sunday that the Pennsylvania Game Commission can decide 
what day and where to place it. In so the it's, okay, so still only three Sundays out of the year. Yes, yes, you know. Well, so, you know what? You got to start somewhere. So that's uh, yeah, that's great. Yeah, and yeah, and it's a quasi more, but, man. quasi victory, right? Yeah. Like it's not completely open, but it's the step right there. And then, right, you know, hopefully we can open it up more in the future and and get that passed. There's a uh, it's kind of how the politics works. Well, sometimes. it's just so asinine. It's like um, here in Texas, and it's probably the same deal. You can't buy liquor on Sunday. Right. I mean, what if I want to watch the Cowboy game and drink some bourbon on Sunday and I'm out? Well, that's stupid. You can't buy beer before noon on Sunday. And it's all uh, I'm not saying that we should celebrate alcoholism. I'm just saying, you know, some days uh, it'd be nice to be able to to get what you want when you want it. And it's stupid, antiquated laws that are preventing that. I mean, it's just making life inconvenient for no reason. Yeah, it's ridiculous. You, You have those things. You'll have people online say, well, the animals need a rest. No, they don't. Really? How come? How come the other forty-seven states, the animals do just fine and are right. prospering, and everything else where they hunt on Sundays? It's just, yeah, it's ridiculous. Yeah, you know, there's no scientific reason for it. It's you know just the way it's been. Yeah. You know that old. And I'm excuse, sure, like the way we've always done religious that. affiliation there. And, and I love the Lord, but some days the Lord wants my butt in a tree stand or on a mountaintop instead of in a church pew. Uh, yeah, that's where I feel the closest to him. Anyway, when I'm out in nature, I see all the the beautiful things he's created. Um, right. And I'm not saying, you know, and, and religiously, like, I don't care what affiliation you are, but I believe there is a higher power. And, and I see that uh, when I'm in the woods, you know, so. Um, totally. Well, so that, well, that's good. And, and Pennsylvania, like you said, um, I think it's like the third or fourth largest state when it comes to number of deer hunters that are in the woods every fall. Yeah, yeah, it's something. It's like clearly Texas is number one, something like that. But uh, oh, of course, everything's (laughs) bigger in Texas. (laughs) Pennsylvania is right. I think I think uh, Wisconsin, maybe Michigan, uh, might be right up there too. But I know Pennsylvania is in the top three or four. Yeah, it's amazing that I mean they must really love whitetail hunting because they've been dealing with this inconvenient crap their entire I mean for their entire lives and they're still out there doing it before we were even a country. Yeah. It's been on the books, huh. you know, so it's like, yeah, so, uh, yeah, so that's a step in the right direction. That's a victory we're celebrating, and uh, hopefully we can even expand that more to get people out in the woods even more. I would say even, like, I, I have a friend who's a Pennsylvania transplant. He owns a he owns a ranch here in Texas now. He still goes back home every fall and just to, just I think, for the nostalgia's sake um, yeah. and hunts the Pennsylvania gun season. And he said it's like it's a way of life there. When people come into work on Monday, it's like, I got a buck. Did you get a buck? Did you get a buck? Who got a buck? You know, it's like water cooler talk. Uh-huh. And, uh, yeah, and and maybe if people – but he also said it doesn't matter how big the buck is. It's just if you got a buck. So it's, if it's brown, it's down, right? So yeah. maybe if they had more time in the woods, hey, they'd be a little more selective. And uh, That's true. You know, I mean. That's true. So, I mean, like you said, the average guy is working Monday through Friday. Yeah. So you have one day, you know, maybe two or something like that yeah. to get it. So, mm-hmm. you know, if you want to be successful, you want meat on the table, you want stories, you want whatever, you got to you're probably taking whatever's coming. Oh, you know, shoot, the first yeah. thing that's coming out. Of. Yeah. So, deer management probably not a thing for most people. And yeah. I don't blame them. Yeah. You get a couple of days to get it and fill your freezer and the horns are, you know, just a byproduct of that. If you can't, if you don't have the chance to look over quite a few deer. Then yeah, uh, pull the trigger. Exactly. So hopefully so, that'll yeah. start to change with more more time in the field. Um, yep. A yep. couple other things. Wildlife contests still, 
you know, under fire. I know what, um, like nine states are currently trying to or have introduced legislation to try to get, like, for instance, coyote contest banned, uh, things yeah. of that nature. Yeah, that's where it all started. It started in New Mexico. Um, the state that I love. I'm so contest. disappointed in that, you know. Yeah, yeah, no, that thing, that, uh, this last session or so, New Mexico has really swung the other way. Mm-hmm. I mean, they uh, they introduced the coyote contest killing bill, and it passed, so that's been enacted there. Um, but before that even came out, they did a, uh, uh, the governor did, by executive action, ban coyote contests on uh, state school land which is land that the state owns, but that's 9 million acres. And so that was already done. And so they're just, they're really swinging to the anti side of things and uh, becoming anti-sportsmen. But uh, yeah, it was uh, passed in New Mexico and there was a rule change made in Arizona. Uh, We killed it in Oregon, Nevada, and Montana. And it's still alive in Massachusetts, New York, New Jersey, and actually just uh, in the last day or so, we've gotten word that New Hampshire is looking at coming out with one. New and Hampshire, that doesn't surprise anybody. I mean, their their governor is the one who tried to ban the uh, black bear hunt on public land uh, last year. Or it might have been. Uh, that was New Jersey. Oh, that, that was New, New Jersey. Jersey. Okay, yeah. Yeah, that's, we, we're in that lawsuit. We sued him and the state to uh, try to get that back. So that's still going through the process there. So hmm. that was a lawsuit there. But. The nexus of these is that, okay, it started in New Mexico with coyote hunting, specifically yeah. coyote contests, right? Well, then it moves kind of up into Oregon, Montana, Wisconsin, and moved across the country, New York, New Jersey, all these places. And as it moved, it started to morph from specifically coyote contests to wildlife contests, anything invi- involving wildlife. Now, what does that, and here's an interesting thing, I mean, like, what about bass fishing? tournament yeah yeah so wildlife in most states is classified as mammals and whatever else anything but fish fish and reptiles or whatever um so there's usually that was an exception to most of it but that's a slippery slope to get on Mm -hmm. the big thing was that they started not only just wildlife but it was for anything from contests awards ribbons money to entertainment and then it went from even entertainment to promotion. So if you put up on Facebook, hey, we're getting together and we're going to do this, you were guilty of it as well. Or you and I, if you if the definition is entertainment, if you and I are out there and we make a bet for a buck on who kills the most coyotes or whatever, that's entertainment. Hmm. So then we'd be guilty of it, you know, just a friendly wager. Um, but the term wildlife, as it went, really opened the door to other things. I mean, youth squirrel hunts, organ, anything organized, any kind of, uh, entertainment guys that are, you know, use, uh, coon hounds or something like that. I mean, Oh, here's where it went was Oregon. It did wildlife. Well, in some places, wildlife referred to just ducks or pheasants or whatever. Didn't specify whether they had to be wild ducks or pheasants so then that opens the door to your field trials Mm -hmm. all your dog sports you know your upland birds your your pointing dogs your uh, waterfowl dogs and those field trials then those are at risk you know and so where does it sit currently with oregon oregon it uh we killed it in oregon 
Okay. It, so it's dead, but they'll be coming back with it most likely. Oh, for sure. Nevada, here's the crazy part, is it went across all the country and then it came back to the West Coast in Nevada, right? So it went up the West Coast, across the top of the Midwest and into New York, New Jersey, and then right at the end of the session, it circled back into Nevada. And you saw kind of this whole progression of how the animal rights movement works. Starts out with coyotes specifically, moves up into the Midwest and the West, and it becomes wildlife contests. And the same thing happens over in the East. By the time it made it back to Nevada, the wildlife contests, the penalty had increased to a felony. It was the same as manslaughter. Mm -hmm. If you killed a coyote during any contest, you were guilty of basically manslaughter. And that's the animal rights movement in a nutshell. Yeah, They're trying to equate killing an animal with killing a person and giving the same protections and everything else. So that was just a microcosm of their entire philosophy and what they're trying to do. Well, and I've talked a lot about anthropomorphism on this show, and some people laugh when they say, oh, that's crazy to think that Disney or something of that nature has a role in, in, um, and what we're talking about is why these people would ever equate killing a coyote as the same as killing a person. Well, I mean, I don't blame Disney. They're making, they're printing money, right? And my kids love Disney. I took them to see, uh, oh hell, we went and saw the Lion King, the new one. And I was like, well, these animals are very realistic and, and it was entertaining. I enjoyed it. Right. But, at the same time, there's a sector of society who can't differentiate between that realm, that uh, a movie, La La Fantasyland, versus what happens in nature, where Simba rips Pumbaa's uh, throat and eats him <laughs> for dinner. Right? I mean, that's yeah. that's reality. They're not running through the forest, holding hands, singing Kumbaya or Hakuna Matata or whatever the hell it is. Um, yeah. So yeah, I think that. Uh, Society is just so desensitized as to what actually happens in the natural world, uh, and you know, and and I do think that that what we're seeing in these uh, these states where they've introduced these is a, is a byproduct of that. You know, I mean, it absolutely oh, is. Without a doubt, without a doubt. I mean, uh, animals, human characteristics, Disney, name them and and tell them they're all best yeah. friends, and it's just. Uh, <laughs> yeah, you know, I mean, remember Cecil the Lion, and everybody, oh my God, is everybody loves this you know, lion and blah, blah. Nobody in Africa knew the, who the hell Cecil was right. except the park operators who named it for the tourists who were there. Yeah. Let's not forget that the thing was at the end of its life. Yep. And the sons that they kept saying, you know, later on that, oh, his son was shot too and suffered. The, that son was going to rip his throat out and eat him pretty soon. Or oh, he was yeah. going to kick him out and he was going to be out on his own and eating villagers. You yep. know, it's, yeah, the anthropomorphism is, rampant and yeah disney i've called it the disneyfication of wildlife for a long time now and there's definitely a role james swan had when i was at espn he wrote for us in the conservation section and he's a psychologist and everything and uh, he talked about it and how that disney went from davy crockett and daniel boone and the cowboys to these animals and bambi and it's just continued because, well, yeah, printing money, mm-hmm. you know. But uh, somehow over the last couple of generations, wildlife flourishing where, you know, before, decades ago, early turn of the century, you know, there wasn't wildlife. It was decimated and we brought it back. Now there's a couple of Pass generations. Pass yourselves on the back, hunters. It's because of us, yeah. you know. That, that's, yeah. Uh, and, 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 and it's only because of us. Don't yeah. don't think for a second that anyone else deserves any of the credit. It is 100% because of hunters 
we are yeah. the biggest conservationists and uh without a doubt we're yeah the hunter conservationists the hunterationists as we call it yeah. you know but now we're to a point where there's a couple of generations that don't know what the landscape looks like without animals on it mm-hmm. they just think this happened and that it, if we just leave it alone it'll just happen and it'll take care of itself well if we Who's leave the it alone we'll look, out there we'll look like europe where the only hunting occurs behind fences and it's very rich. The average guy cannot participate in hunting in, in, in most of Europe. I mean, that's just... Oh, uh, yeah. And that's they, what, they have and no that's what made America different. Yeah. You know, we, we everything belonged to the king in Europe and the landowner, you know, and the wildlife in America. Even if the land isn't ours, yeah. you know, the wildlife still is, you know. Yeah. And so if it leaves that land, yeah, you can kill it. So, but this whole anthropomorphism and just leave things alone, it'll take care of itself is the biggest myth out there. Mm. You know, nature's just boom and bust cycles. And with more and more farmland and cities, those boom and bust cycles become even more exacerbated. I mean, it's our responsibility to manage it, to reduce the suffering, to keep things in check with Mm -hmm. the habitat. You know, otherwise it's Death, disease, debt, you know, and destruction of the habitat. Carrying capacity is not something that they have, or the the other side even acknowledges exists, you know? <laughs> oh, no. They just, oh, we'll introduce, you know, apex predators and wolves and bears, and they'll kill it. And, well, okay, what happens when they kill everything? <laughs> because those apex predators don't want to starve either, so they're coming after your livestock and kids and everything else. And, yeah. Mm-hmm. They don't believe that happens. Oh, it's rare. Well, it's because they're managed and they're kept in check. You know. Um, let's do this. Let's take a quick break. There's a there's a a bill that President Trump signed, I believe, last week, maybe ten days ago. Uh, I want to find out if it has any impact on hunters and and what we do. So, are you cool to stick around for a few more minutes? I'm here, brother. Excellent. That segment, by the way, brought to you by Lone Star Ag Credit. Land's the one thing they ain't making any more of, but we all want it. And Lone Star Ag Credit has been making that dream a reality for its borrowers for over 100 years. They'll do the same for you, whether that's for recreating, running cattle, hunting, fishing, or just to get the hell out of Dodge. You can find them at LoneStarAgCredit.com. We'll be right back with more from Brian Lynn of the Sportsman's Alliance on the Lone Star Outdoor Show. Hey guys, Cable here, and uh, I want to tell you about outdoor access. See, access is the one thing I hear hunters complaining about the most. They don't have a place to hunt, but they want to, right? Well, outdoor access is the solution to that problem. Think Uber, but for hunters. It's a membership-based program. It's only $9 a month, but it gives you access to a list of properties for uh, hunting whatever you want. You want to hunt deer one weekend? Great. You want to hunt ducks on another property the next? Fine. Turkey on another? You have dozens to choose from. And it's a lot less expensive than paying for a traditional 52-week lease. So if you're interested in basically what I call Uber for the outdoorsman, use the activation code LONESTAR at checkout. Just go to OutdoorAccess.com. That's OutdoorAccess.com. And use my promo code LONESTAR for 30% off your membership. That's OutdoorAccess.com. Hey guys, Cable here, and uh, I want to tell you about Outdoor Access. See, access is the one thing I hear hunters complaining about the most. They don't have a place to hunt, but they want to, right? Well, Outdoor Access is the solution to that problem. 
Think Uber, but for hunters. It's a membership-based program. It's only $9 a month, but it gives you access to a list of properties for uh, hunting whatever you want. You want to hunt deer one weekend? Great. You want to hunt ducks on another property the next? Fine. Turkey on another? You have dozens to choose from. And it's a lot less expensive than paying for a traditional 52-week lease. So if you're interested in basically what I call Uber for the outdoorsman, use the activation code Lone Star at checkout. Just go to OutdoorAccess.com. That's OutdoorAccess.com. And use my promo code Lone Star for 30% off your membership. That's OutdoorAccess.com. Hesitation, I walked up to him. He put his hand on my shoulder and with a grin. He said these words I remember all my life. There's only two things in life that will ever last. It's the word of God and Johnny Cash. And if you had any sense, you'd learn him oh so well. Johnny Cash, the name of that one from Drew Moreland. Lone Star Outdoor Show. Cable Smith here with you. Thanks to Dallas Safari Club, our title sponsor. Thanks to Lone Star Beer and Hoff Power Polaris as well. Thanks to y'all for tuning in today. I do appreciate it. We're about to continue our discussion with Brian Lynn, VP of Marketing for Sportsman's Alliance. But before we dive back into that, this segment brought to you by Manscaped. You know, no shave November, yeah, that's a thing, um, but not where you're downstairs, guys. The doe in your life doesn't want to be with a Neanderthal. She just doesn't. So when she finally comes into estrus and uh, that headache goes away, you got to be ready. You got to look good. So check out the Lawnmower 2.0. It features skin-safe anti-nick technology to keep those twigs and berries in top, pristine condition, looking good, right? And uh, ladies, by the way, hey. Maybe you want to send your man a message. So uh, check it out for Christmas. The Lawnmower 2.0 as well as Manscaped entire lineup of, uh, well, they do have funny names like Crop Preserver or Crop Reviver, Foot Duster, but tons of stuff to keep us manly men feeling, looking, and smelling good. Mm. <laughs> and by the way, uh, you'll save 20% and get free shipping when you use my promo code LONESTAR when you check out at Manscaped. Dot com. All right. Well, with that being said, uh, let's pick it back up here with Brian Lynn of the Sportsman's Alliance. Brian, thanks for sticking around. Certainly enjoying the discussion today. You betcha. Always love coming on the show. So one other thing I wanted to hit on before we talk about the, the new uh, PACT Act is uh, New York trapping. Let's start with that. What is the latest on, on their uh, situation? Because I'll, I'll be honest with you, for the first time in my life, I bought some leg holds, and I've got a bunch of coyotes on this one property that I leased. That I mean, uh, I'm almost going to change the name of my my camera just to the coyote cam because it's about all I'm seeing, all times of the day, and uh, and so I uh, as soon as deer season ends, I am going to uh, try my hand at setting leg holds for the first time. Nice. Yeah. Very nice. Yeah. No, trapping is one of the fundamental activities, you know, of wildlife management. It's it's out there. Uh, the, the trapper knows so much about the land, about the animals. They're the first line that can tell you what populations are doing, what's happening out there. And it's 
one of the most effective management tools out there because a trap can be out there for a couple of days when a hunter can't be and can trap them at night or whenever they're active. We need trapping. While the trapper and trapping are the front lines of management, they're also the front lines of being attacked yep. by the animal rights movement. It's very easy to portray it as cruel, you know, un, un, you know, manageable, and it's just out there. You're snagging dogs, you're snagging cats, you're bycatch, and all these other things. Very easy. I mean, out here in the West, Washington, Oregon, California, trapping's banned. You know, mm-hmm. so and that's the, they're one of their top targets. So we see this happening all the time. You know, they're coming in all the time, different states. So New York, the legislator just introduced a trapping ban. Um, so we'll see if we can get it killed. But that's that's something we're always seeing. That's a broad scale it, bill. I mean, just completely yeah, eliminating yeah. trapping. Yep. Yep. And, uh, you know, and that's for the state. And it's introduced by an assemblywoman from Manhattan, the Upper West Side. Oh, you know, gosh. she isn't she isn't going to have to deal with the repercussions. Mm-hmm. You know, she can ban it. She can hold it up and say, look what I did. Make New Yorkers in Manhattan happy. But those in Syracuse and Albany and, you know, everywhere else, New York's a big state. What about and, rats? I mean, are they, like, because <laughs> that see, that's where things get interesting. And then they usually write an, an exception because that happened here in Washington state where I grew up and mm-hmm. live now is they ban trapping. And it's done through the I-5 corridor, Seattle, Olympia, Tacoma, and these places. I live on the east side, and we deal with the coyotes and now wolves and everything else. Well, they banned trapping, you know, because it was this great message. Well, then all the people at the Capitol building there in Olympia, there was moles tearing up the yards, and then the golf courses where all the I-5 people play. Well, they got all upset, and well, let's trap them. <laughs> you know, the East Side legislator is like, nope, 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 can't do that. You know, but uh, they eventually get those exceptions made. Uh, you know, serves their purposes, but they don't have to deal with the with the fallout. Yeah, it's the ranchers and the farmers and everybody else that has to deal with it. That has to live in the wildlife with the wildlife. This has to what you're describing it. is the number one uh, obstacle that we face as a hunting community, and it's. You know, and I live in an urban area. You know, I live in the suburb of Dallas, let's say, right? So I, I live in an urban setting. Um, but it's these urban areas that make decisions for the people that are actually out there living amongst the animals, you know, um, making a living off the land. These people in cities don't have a clue what's going on or what the reality is out there. And they're the ones that make decisions, whether that's, you know, uh, Denver and Boulder and Colorado uh, L.A., um, San Francisco, California, like you just uh, alluded to, Seattle, for the most part, in Washington State. I mean, it's these major yeah. urban areas that really are the biggest problem for us. Oh, yeah. No, it's it's completely at the at the bottom of the barrel. There's all sorts of issues, but at the bottom Manhattan, of the barrel, it comes down to rural versus urban. Yeah. You know, and and urban it. has no skin in the game. They, they, yeah, they don't have to deal with the consequences and repercussions yeah. of it. They're, they're disconnected. They don't have anything to do with it, you know. Uh, eventually, yeah, I mean, they'll get coyotes or whatever in town, but it doesn't bother them, and they, the odds of them being attacked, you know, doesn't matter, and they can say it's rare and whatever else. Well, for example, but, you know, like Colorado's trying to, and they have been for the last two years, they're getting, you know, the ball rolling on trying to reintroduce wolves, right? Yeah. Well, it's, those people in Boulder and Denver are never going to be out there uh, amongst the wolves, 
They're no, no. Safe in their little cubicle. Uh, yeah, and going to the game, you know, going to the Broncos or Rockies game, and you know, not they're not hunting elk. They aren't going to, you know, yeah. be like you know losing the bottom half of your lineup or taking out your running back and and center and trying to play a game. You know, they don't understand it. So. I'm not. I mean, I'm not personally scared about like being attacked by by wolves. I'm more scared about. Well, boom! There just went a third of your elk herd. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> there went millions and millions of dollars in license sales in out-of-state hunters who no longer want to come to your state because your elk herd has been wiped out. I mean, the yeah, implication there goes your funding for conservation yeah. and everything else, and everything starts to degrade. Mm-hmm. You know, so it's uh, it's a huge issue, and that's that's our biggest fight. You know, when it's rural versus urban. So whether it's yeah. legislation going through that we're trying to stop or it's a ballot initiative, you see it come in. Yeah. And so you got to look at those urban areas and go, okay, how much is a media buy here? And it's whoever buys the most airtime and gets their message out in the proper way, you know, mm. is going to win that ballot initiative. Oh, yeah. And that's expensive. We yeah. saw something else crazy in 2019. Have you heard of the, uh, the endangered California bobcat? <laughs> what are you referring to? I here? mean, didn't California just uh, make it illegal to oh, yeah. to kill a bobcat? Yeah, yeah. Not trap them. I mean, like hunting and trapping yeah. is done. It's yeah. done completely. So they're protected. Yeah. They are now a protected species. Yeah, freaking just like bobcat. mountain lions are there. I mean, mountain lions are too. Um, you yeah. know, so it's just. I'm going to cheer every time away. I see a bobcat carrying off someone's house cat in L.A. I mean, that's just. Oh, yeah. uh, yeah, and the scary part, though, is that California is uh, it's the nexus for all this. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, the mothership. Whatever happens in California will spread up the coast to Washington and Oregon. It'll jump over to New York, New Jersey, you know, uh, Massachusetts and those areas. And then it uh, moves inwards and they take that those same bills, manipulate them a little bit, change them around and see where they can pick up other states within there. Mm-hmm. Well, what's all the Californians are leaving California, not all of them, but too many of them are leaving California. A lot of them are showing up like here Austin. in North Texas. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. North Texas, Austin, coming up to Seattle, coming up to Spokane, where I live, and they bring those ideologies with them. Mm-hmm. You know, you know my number one best-selling shirt for the show is the one that says uh, "Don't California my Texas." <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty good. That's yeah. pretty good. Yeah. So. yeah. so it's you know you can look forward to seeing similar similar uh, legislation introduced in other states, mm-hmm. and as they gain population in these states, you know it will become a harder and harder fight. Well, I just don't get it. You know, you left that cesspool of a state for a reason. And then you come, you go somewhere else, and you try to do the same thing. It's like uh, they've never heard the phrase "history repeats itself" because they're yeah. they're living that cliche, uh, no doubt about it. Um, one other thing, and, and really, why I wanted to have you on today, we've talked about a lot of uh, other important stuff, but the uh, PACT Act, um, President Trump signed this about a week ago, and it's the Preventing Animal Cruelty and Torture Act. Um, I had a lot of people send me links to this, um, to this, um, I guess him signing, the president signing this, saying, hey, do we need to be concerned about this as, as sportsmen and women? How will this impact our way of life? And said, I said, you know, well, uh, I know somebody that can answer that question because I obviously haven't read through it 
Uh, you guys vet out all of these bills, and I know that you've done your due diligence on the PACT Act. So is there a cause for concern for the hunting community here? Well, there's always a cause for concern, right? So we want to look at it, and you have to be mindful. And, yeah, it's great to be look at things with, you know, a jaded eye and be like, okay, how can this be changed? What can happen here? Um, you know, is this a slippery slope? Does this word, the legal definition of this word, a la the coyote contest, when they change it to wildlife, what's the implications there? So it's always good to look at this stuff and be mindful of it and watch it. But the short answer is we're not that concerned about it. Okay. This is something that took place, a bill that was passed in like 2009, um, and it has to do with videotaping and disseminating the videotapes of animals being tortured. Okay. You know, this Which I think we can all stuff. agree that's terrible. No, no hunter yeah. or sportsman yeah. or woman would ever do that. Yeah, I don't get it, but I guess some people get off on watching a puppy being crushed or, you know, torture happening, and people film this, and there's this... Oh, those two idiots in Pennsylvania this week. Yeah. Uh, Those two teenagers that had shot a deer and, I guess, spined it, and then they think it's a good idea to video themselves kicking the buck in the face and laughing about it. I mean, uh, that was one of the grossest things I've ever seen. I wonder if that was... I wonder if this will impact them. Uh, because it is now a felony. Uh, yeah, yeah, it, there's a possibility. Um, well, here's, uh, I don't know, that, that would be, there's probably enough legal definition. So going back to the PACT Act, here's why we're n- not too concerned about it, is that it's just closing the loophole and it's adding the crush definition and depiction of animal cruelty, any picture, video, whatever, where an animal is maimed, mutilated, tortured, killed. Uh-huh. So, there's exceptions in there. And this is where, you know, I've seen it on a lot of Facebook pages from hunters and, you know, there's a couple guys that I know in particular like, nope, this is the the nose under the camel's tent and, you know, all that stuff. And it's like, well, here's the exceptions. It doesn't apply in any regard to conduct, visual depiction of anything that is A, customary in normal veterinarian, veterinary, agriculture, husbandry, or other animal management practice like branding, artificial insemination, spaying and neuter. Mm-hmm. doesn't apply to that. Uh, the slaughter of animals for food, hunting, trapping, fishing, a sporting activity not otherwise prohibited by federal law, pet- predator control, or pest control, medical or scientific research necessary to protect life or property of a person or performed as part of euthanizing an animal. So, Okay. So that closes one thing that I was concerned with is like, okay, so you've trapped 15 hogs or you've got a coyote caught in a leg hold and these animals are alive. And and I would never video this and put it out there because it it looks bad for us, but there are people that do and uh, for whatever reason. But, and I don't think that it's criminal. It's just not for me. Um, So that, so at least we know now that, that uh, those things won't be affected. No. So for that to impact us and those practices, first, they have to make those practices illegal. They have to ban trapping. So I guess here in Washington, if somebody was trapping, they have some permits. But if they were trapping illegally, made a video and did it, they could prove they were in Washington and all that. Then it could apply, I guess. Um, But it has to be illegal. The the, the act has to be illegal Mm -hmm. to begin with. Um, And then it has to do with the depiction so you have to video it, take a picture of it, whatever, yeah. and then possess it and sell it. Okay. 
So there's multiple layers of protections for us, you know, as far as, okay, is this, you know, it actually doesn't even stop the cruelty. It's the videoing because that's the, one of the components of it. And you have to want to, I mean, those two boys in Pennsylvania that are in a lot of trouble, uh, I, I mean, they obviously didn't do it to sell it. They just did it and put it on social media. You have that to... would be that would be the production and the dissemination of it. Okay. It doesn't have to be for a pro, for a for profit for yeah. profit or anything. Mm-hmm. Um, so I guess it's probably going to come down to technical law as far as okay, is what they did technically illegal? I mean, it's one of the worst things I've ever so, seen. To be honest with you, from yeah, and and people like and I posted it on my Instagram. People like why? Some people, most people didn't have a problem with it, but a couple of people were like, why would you shed light on this? And I said, well. Because for me, these people are not hunters. They're psychopaths. And yeah. I think since it's already out there, it's been shared by news channels. It's it's, it's all over the place. Um, they're like, well, the antis are going to get a hold of it. But they've already got a hold of it. They've already and got a hold of it. Here's so our chance have a to, discussion. Right. And here's our chance to get in front of it and say, listen, this is not who we are as hunters. Um, and for the people on the fence, because you're not going to change the anti's mind, I encourage no. people not even to have a conversation with them. It's not worth your time. But the people on the fence that are – Okay, the, you know, your neighbor, he's like, wow, cool, you hunt. Maybe you gave me a, a goose breast one time or whatever it was. I don't really hunt, but I see why you do it. I mean, that's that, those are the people we need to to get out in front yeah. of this and say, this is not who we are, you know? Uh, yeah. I think this it's a, just, a chance to educate people. And, yeah, exactly. You know, we can't, uh, you know, it doesn't do any good to hide it. Right. You know, let's get out there and, yeah, say, no, we do not support this. And, uh, yeah, let, you know. I even said, you know, to uh, the ex- extent of the law that's possible. Absolutely. Prosecute them. Um, yeah. But I, I mean, I'd be deathly afraid if my kids went to school with those boys. I mean, they're, they're psychopaths. They need psych evaluations. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's, uh, it's telling. Well, interesting stuff. Um, so no real cause for concern there on the PACT Act. That's good to hear. Um, and, uh, certainly appreciate all you guys do you know, in the front lines. And uh, I think education, you guys keep everyone in the loop on, on what's going on with the uh, potential legislation that could affect hunting and trapping. And uh, certainly I'm a big fan. If you want to give the website, though, so folks can check out uh, Sportsman's Alliance. Yeah, Sportsmen's Alliance, M-E-N-S, sportsmensalliance.org. Uh, we put up all the latest legislation that we're working on and seeing coming and Updates on lawsuits and such, and uh, Facebook, you can check the same thing. Uh, do post a lot of uh, articles and things that are going on out there, as well as the legislation, and have some uh, interesting discussions sometimes on there. Yeah, on Instagram as well. You guys got a great Instagram page, so Instagram well, too. Check that out. All the millennials tuning in, I know they. That's probably the Instagram's probably the first place they go for news, right? <laughs> probably, yeah. I, I, I'm so far beyond. I'm so old. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> that's where my kid goes. They're in YouTube. I don't know. Yeah, we're uh, so. we're a little antiquated. Well, uh, I will say this: I took my son out this past weekend and um, shot our first our first coyote together. So uh, awesome. Yeah, and then you get the the fun aspect of educating him on why we shoot something we don't eat and and then yep. you get to start diving into uh uh wildlife management and you know hey the quail and the deer and everything else turkeys that are on our property are going to benefit and uh coyotes are as numerous as the grains of sand at the beach so it's not really yeah a, no that's you know. uh that's a great thing especially the whole eating concept you know mm-hmm. it's it's great kill what we eat and it's a great uh selling point it's 
ethical, everything else, but it's also ethical to take out these predators uh, that really don't have too many other, you know, predators themselves that are at the top of the food chain and keeping everything in balance. That's what a lot of folks miss. Yeah. Well, and historically, you know, we're diving back into something else here, but that's fine. Uh, You know, there used to be a a fur trade, like a viable fur trade. You could do it for a living, right? Now, if you say, oh, I'm a trapper, well, you're damn sure doing something else to supplement your income because that is, uh, you know, it's a passion really more than than a viable way to uh, support your family. Yeah, without a doubt. Unless you've turned it into a business and you're working for the state and trapping nuisance animals, you know, which if anybody wants to get rich, that might be the way to go, especially in some of these western states yeah. um, where they're banning trapping because, uh, you know, it's not going away. Yeah. The, the, the need for trapping is not going away in California or Washington or anywhere else. It's just getting moved to the state. Is <laughs> you think professional responsibility that, Brian? To the professional trapper and it's hiring like a, people. Hey, when when these states ban trapping, it's like a job. It's like a big old uh, job opening for trappers. Like, oh, they're going to be needing a, a government trapper soon. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Oh, you know, at paid the cost, for by at the cost of the taxpayers. Dollars. Oh. Yes. <laughs> Just. You know, I mean, here in Washington State, not only have they banned uh, trapping, they banned the use of hounds for mountain lions and bears, uh-huh. and the use of bait for bears. You know. Um, and so it's like, holy cow, you know, the state is killing mountain lions up here like crazy. Yeah. I have a friend who's killed 40 last summer during the middle of the summer because oh. of depredation, you know, oh. and they're paying him instead of having hunters go out there and do it. It's the state's just... still using the methods and means, mm-hmm. you know, but the average sportsman can't. So that's just the whole animal rights philosophy falls apart. You know, the animals still die. It's just at a cost to the state. And... They still die. That's the thing. Yeah. Yeah, They still die, and nobody's eating them or using them. They get thrown in a ditch. That is the sad state of affairs. Well, you guys keep fighting the good fight, my friend. We appreciate it. You betcha. Thank you for having us on and everything you do to promote us. All right, Brian. Well, hey, take care, brother. Take care. Bye-bye. So there he goes, Sportsman's Alliance VP of Marketing, Brian Lynn. Uh, Always a treat visiting with him. And that segment, by the way, was proudly brought to you by First Light's Catalyst Whitetail System. It's what I wear uh, whether I'm climbing a tree or sitting in a box blind. Uh, It's quiet, it's rugged, it acts as a windbreak, and is water resistant. It's pretty much perfect for hunting whitetails in mild weather. So, do yourself a favor, head over to firstlight.com. You can check out the Catalyst there as well as their entire lineup of both whitetail and western big game hunting gear. First light, go further, stay longer. Up next, we talk big, elusive whitetail bucks with First Light's whitetail product line manager, Greg Farrell. You're listening to the Lone Star Outdoor Show. Tried to give her a ride, she said, hell no. Just needed time alone to be on her own. And Johnson City's a long way from Blanco. Hey y'all, Chris Letzinger, online sales manager at Cinnamon Creek Ranch here, reminding you we're not your typical archery club. We're a one-of-a-kind archery facility with indoor and outdoor ranges, full pro shop, and six different 3D courses. Cinnamon Creek was designed by hunters for hunters. Located in Roanoke, Texas, we have over 200 3D targets to hone your archery skills. Call 817-439-8998 or visit us at cinnamoncreekranch.com to visit our new online store. That's cinnamoncreekranch.com. 
Live Oak Outdoors offers some of the best waterfowl hunting in the Central Flyway, hunting over 2,000 acres of cut rice along the coast that attracts wintering geese by the tens of thousands. Hunts take place out of layout blinds or white parkas over a spread of 1,500 decoys. It's also common to shoot pintail and other puddle ducks in the goose spread. Professional guides make sure you have a safe and memorable hunt of a lifetime. They're based out of El Campo, Texas. Check them out at liveoakoutdoors.com or you can book your hunt by calling Chris Slimp at 832-466-9646. If I had a dime for every single time that something was promised to me, I'd have about $235 and not a lot of wait and see what's gonna be. Hey, I'm jaded, and I should have saw it coming. A little cross Canadian ragweed bringing us back on the Lone Star Outdoor Show. Kicking with I'm Cable Smith. Thank you so much for being here today. This is episode 510. It's been damn near a decade of hanging out with y'all every week, talking outdoors. And honestly, I feel like we're just getting started. So again, thanks for tuning in. Thanks for the support over the years. I do appreciate it. We're about to get into some serious whitetail discussion here, chasing those big, mature bucks. It can be a frustrating endeavor, as I've experienced so far this fall, got one that, whew, man, he's given me quite the beat down, to be honest with you. Uh, but the season's far from over, and we're going to take that conversation head on here momentarily, as well as hit on the gear that I trust and that I rely on while in the Whitetail Woods. And we'll do that with First Light's Whitetail product line manager, Greg Farrell, a lifelong Whitetail hunter, uh, here in just a second. But first, this segment. Brought to you by Dallas Safari Club, the worldwide leader in big game conservation. The upcoming Sporting Expo Heritage 2020 is right around the corner. Save the date January 9th through the 12th at the K. Bailey Hutchinson Convention Center, downtown Dallas. It's the hunting show of shows in the entire world. I mean, literally outfitters from all over the globe, uh, your favorite uh, rifle, optics, clothing manufacturers. Hell, First Light will be there, Vortex, among others. Fishing guides, um, I mean, you name it. It is the show of shows, and it's taking place January 9th through the 12th. I will be out there every day looking to uh, book a caribou hunt for next fall. So if you're looking to book a hunting trip or check out the latest and greatest gear that the industry has to offer, then you need to be there. I will certainly be there all four days. If you see me, stop me. Let's have a Lone Star beer and trade war stories. You can find more information about Heritage at Big Game. Dot org. Moving right along here, um, let's go ahead and bring on our next guest. We've got a lot of whitetail stuff to get into today. It's my pleasure to welcome First Light's Greg Farrell to the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. My pleasure. Uh, so first of all, tell us a little bit about yourself as a hunter and how that led you to a career with First Light. Definitely, definitely. So, um, I grew up in Wisconsin. Um, so kind of the stereotypical Midwest experience, um, really cut my teeth in terms of my hunting experience on whitetails. Um, had a family that was into whitetail hunting. So mm -hmm. from a very young age, uh, that was really my introduction. Um, definitely supplemented that with all of the other critters that the Midwest has to offer. So did a lot of turkey hunting, um, some small game as well, some 
waterfowl as well. But um, early on, kind of realized that whitetails were my passion. Um, and it was one of those things where I kind of got the got the bug from uh-huh. my family introduction, but took it and ran and kind of turned it into my own thing from there. So I was lucky enough to go to college in the western part of the state, um, the Driftless area, which is really known for kind of the giants of of Wisconsin. So had about six years um, in the western part of the state, um, did a lot of DIY stuff on public land. Um, you said six years. I did that same college uh, experience. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I joke. Um, I, I got done with my undergrad in four, but the only reason I went back for grad school is to give myself two more years to chase whitetails. Oh, smart, smart. <laughs> no, it took me six for undergrad. So good, good for you. <laughs> uh, well, maybe, I don't know. Grad school is an expensive way to give yourself two more years to hunt a lot. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, I think, uh, I could have spent more time in class and less time in the duck blind. That would have uh, helped me out a little bit, but same deal. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I still, I mean, every, every year when November rolls around, I still kind of wish I had the college student schedule. I got a lot more time in the tree yeah. during those years than I find myself uh, uh-huh. being able to uh, now, but yeah, so that was, that's kind of my, my whitetail background. And then obviously from there, uh, moved around the state with different jobs, um, still really hitting the whitetail thing hard. And then actually during college is when I expanded and started doing some Western hunts. So getting out to a few different Western states, chasing elk, uh, mule deer, you know, those stereotypical Western mm-hmm. animals, um, fell in love with that as well. And then really in terms of how that evolved into first light was uh, I was teaching at the time. That was my original career outside of school as a high school teacher. Hmm. And they had posted a job. It was more of a like internship slash interview three month position um, over the summer months, which worked out great with my uh, current work schedule. So applied for that, ended up getting it, um, came in with them on the sales and marketing side of things. And then ended up staying on, eventually getting kind of promoted and moved into the product department. Um, And I've been there ever since. Mm -hmm. Uh, More of a product operations role for the first couple of years. And then um, now moving into being our whitetail line, uh, product line manager on the whitetail side. And so you've gotten to do a lot of, um, you know, hands-on stuff as far as product testing and, and development is concerned. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, when I came on, we were still pretty small, um, and everybody wore a lot of hats. And with my kind of expertise and honestly just my passion and love for whitetails, it was a natural fit that I had a lot of a lot of hours and days logged in the whitetail woods and sitting in a stand. Um, and inherently, like even before I came on with First Light, I'm a, kind of a gear nerd junkie. Loved to kind of tinker with stuff, a lot of gear that I would buy and modify it to make it my own. So I've always had that kind of creative, innovative portion of my brain, um, which worked out well in terms of being involved in not only developing, but also testing gear, both on the Western whitetail side, but then really moving into whitetail specific with First Light, which has been, it's been great. Yeah. Well, you know, First Light continues to evolve and expand as a brand, really focusing a lot of energy and resources on whitetail here over the last couple of years. That's going to continue moving forward. Uh, obviously, you know, you're going to be overseeing that. 
the catalyst pants and jacket, I mean, that was something I was really excited about last year. It's my, my go-to for Texas. You know, we don't get those balmy 20-degree uh, days very often like you do in Wisconsin. So the catalyst is, like, perfect for – uh, 40 to 60 degree weather that we have here. Uh, what what is what is your preferred uh, kit when you're sitting in a tree in Wisconsin? You know that really depends on uh, the type of, or excuse me the time of year. So yeah. we're it's kind of interesting in Wisconsin. We start September 15th, so we are still definitely hunting deer in their summer patterns, and we get you know September days that are still it's a possibility definitely of days that are still in the seventies and eighties. So my kit definitely evolves. Um, I would say just a quick overview, obviously this, I'll leave some of the details out here, not to be too long winded, but most likely for me in September and early October, um, I'm running the obsidian pants and then one of our wick. So our lightest weight base layers on top going into the stand for the first few hours of the sit. What I really like about that kit is it's full merino. So I'm in merino, you know, from top to bottom, which is going to mitigate odor really well. Uh, it's extremely quiet. And, you know, obviously for whitetail guys, those two things, odor and noise, are the two biggest concerns. Um, and then a lot of times that time of year, I will have either a furnace uh, or a Klamath in my pack. And I'll throw that on as an additional top layer, you know, that last hour of the sit when things start to cool down. Um, then to your point, like middle, kind of what I would call the middle of our season or early portion of the middle season, I'll transition to Catalyst. Um, nice thing about the Catalyst, I'm sure you have this, in, especially in Texas and some of the country you hunt, but that stuff wears like nails. I mean, it's super tough, but it's also, again, super quiet. So yeah. that's my go-to in the Midwest, I would say, from like middle of October until middle of November, and I can layer underneath that accordingly from as little as a base layer up to, you know, adding a mid layer. Um, and then what I transition into for kind of our Super Bowl, so, you know, end of October through middle to end of November would be our solitude kit. And the great thing about the solitude kit is it's really just an evolution of that catalyst. I'm sure you don't get a chance to wear that in Texas as much. I know you do probably some of the other places you hunt. But right. That's the exact same fabric package as the catalyst. Um, but what we did is we just added insulation behind it. So you're getting that same super tough, um, durable gear that's also still dead quiet in the stand even when it gets cold out. Well, yeah, and I have noticed because one day I accidentally left the, the Catalyst jacket at home, climbed into the uh, – was about to climb into the stand. I was like, man, it's chilly, and I grabbed the Uncompagre. And I always uh, knock an arrow and, and draw one time when I first sit down just to make sure everything's good to go and I feel comfortable. And it, you could definitely tell that, that that jacket was not designed for that. I love the Uncompagre. It's like my most comfortable jacket I have, but uh, certainly not designed for bow hunting <laughs> close quarters. Yeah, that's definitely more of a kind of a Western yeah. insulation piece. Yeah. Um, and the great thing about the Solitude is, and my one of my favorite features of it, is our kit link system in there. So basically how that works is there's a pass-through in the jacket that goes into a built-in muff um, on the bibs underneath. So especially bow hunting, you know, I don't like to have anything on my hands if I don't have to. Yeah. If I have to, it's going to be a real light glove. So I can get my hands nice and close to my body and keep them warm, you know, down even into the 30s, low 30s, without really having to wear gloves, which is awesome for those, you know, November sits when it's kind of in that, you know, 40, 
40 degree to upper 20 degree range without having to worry about gloves, taking them on and off. It's, it's pretty a game changer in terms of archery bow hunting. Oh, I, I can't stand wearing gloves when bow hunting at all. Yeah, I don't, I'm not comfortable. And I don't practice shooting with gloves on. That's the other thing. If you are going to shoot with gloves on, you, you're damn sure better practice with them. Um, Definitely. What other traits specifically separate a whitetail geared piece versus one designed more for a backcountry function? Yeah, for sure. I mean, in terms of a design process, it's kind of interesting. You know, we go about the development and design process the same, whether it's a Western piece or an Eastern piece, um, starting from like basically the first light ethos being we're trying to develop and design products to solve problems. Um, we don't like to be a me too company. Um, if it's not revolutionary or evolving what's out there in the market, we don't like to put it out, mm -hmm. which has kind of been a testament to how we've evolved into whitetail. Obviously, you know, in the early stages of First Light, we were a Western-based company. And as we grow our whitetail line and continue to, and you're going to see a huge push and a lot more of that um, in the future, what we're trying to do is create things that don't exist already um, or improve things that do. So the Catalyst Fabric's a great uh, example of that. You know, there's a lot of quiet Berber fleeces and other, you know, cheaper materials out there that can be quiet but don't do a lot of other things great um so in terms of a design ethos it's really the same between western and whitetail where it differs is obviously the functions and features of those pieces so when we're designing gear for a whitetail guy you know we're thinking or understanding that the majority of those hunters are not walking as far you know you're and that's not true in all cases you know some of the guys or gals doing some of the deeper public land DIY stuff, you got to get into your stand. Mm -hmm. But in general, it's a shorter walk to the stand. Um, so what we're going to do is we're going to design gear that's going to be tough enough to get you into your stand, whether you're walking on a trail or not, bust and brush, but also you're able to vent during those short terms of high output. Um, but then also understanding that really the importance of a whitetail piece is going to be how do you stay warm and comfortable during extended periods of inactivity? Right. So on a Western piece, it's extended periods of activity and a whitetail piece, it's extended periods of inactivity. So that's going to be pieces of gear that block the wind, you know, while you're not moving pieces of gear that are able to insulate you and keep you warm while you're not moving. And then largely pieces of gear that need to be dead quiet, um, especially from a bow hunting perspective for whitetails. You know, we're talking, hopefully engagement distances of, you know, 20 yards or less. That's great. Now that doesn't always happen, but when you're hunting critters as tuned in as whitetails, the smallest amount of noise can make or break something. So focusing on how are you able to do the hunting motions, for example, standing from a sitting position in a tree stand, drawing your bow, um, things like that without making any noise, um, a little less important on the Western perspective, but really crucial from a whitetail side of things. Mm -hmm. uh, and I have noticed like um, with that, the catalyst fabric and the solitude fabric, not waterproof, but certainly water resistant, uh, which is yep. nice because sometimes it's drizzling, you know, in a, in a downpour, you probably want to have something else, but um, it's nice to, to not get soaked um, when there's just a light amount of precipitation. Uh, also like windbreaking uh, does a great job there. Yeah, that, I mean, that's great to hear. That's definitely how we designed it. I mean, I think some people don't acknowledge, too, how important breathability is on a whitetail piece. Um, there's a, actually a fair amount of output that happens um, from the walk-in, whether you're carrying a stand, 
you know, carrying your bow, et cetera, and then even climbing up into a tree. Um, if you get sweated up from the inside before you even sit down in your tree, regardless of the temperatures or how good your gear is, you're probably going to get cold. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's definitely towing that line between making it the gear breathable enough to withstand those outputs, but then also to your point, you know, wind resistant enough that the wind's not coming through on you. Um, and then also water resistant enough where if you do get caught in a drizzle or snowstorm or whatever it might be, um, you're going to stay dry and stay warm through your whole sit. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, well, so I'm leaving for Illinois this week for their muzzleloader season. Um, it's going to be a lot colder obviously than it is, uh, back home here in Texas. So my kit's going to be uh, probably the the kiln or the Lano base layer with the furnace long john, and then throw a sawtooth on top of that for the uh, midweight. Then I'll have the sanctuary bibs. I mean, I'm skipping right over the solitude because it's going to be uh, this Texas boy doesn't like to be cold. Uh, <laughs> and then you know base will have the uh, the uh, tundra balaclava headpiece. I do want to talk about hands and feet though because I think yeah. that's where you know you obviously lose a lot of heat through your head. Uh, but mm-hmm. nothing is more uncomfortable than having cold toes, cold fingers. So, for example, one time this year, I don't know why, I was like, maybe I'll just wear two pairs of socks today. My feet were freezing. And I don't know why I did yeah. that. I knew better. But I was like, I had I had a, a first light pair, and then I had like these big old thermal ones that I've had for years and years and years, and I threw those on top of the first light ones. It was a stupid idea. My toes got cold. Um what uh, what are some tips that you have to keep your your extremities warm on like you know a 15 degree Wisconsin hunt? For sure. Um, so what I like to do, and a lot of it starts with, and we'll start with feet, I guess, just going from the bottom up. Uh-huh. Um, one of the things that I like to do is um, if I am wearing a rubber boot, like say a lacrosse or a muck boot. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of times, and I've made this mistake too, what happens is you don't realize it, but your feet actually sweat up on the walk-in. So I'll wear a real lightweight pair of socks on the walk-in to try and mitigate any moisture whatsoever. And then when I get to my stand before I climb up, I'm going to quick pull off those lightweight socks and put on a pair of our um, cold weather socks. So I got a dry pair of mm. socks um, before I actually go into the stand to make sure that I'm not getting any additional moisture inside that boot. It's a little less of an issue um, if you're wearing a more traditional, like, say, like, pack boot or, like, Iceman-style boot. Um, but if you are – I'm a rubber boot guy just from the scent perspective. So I like to have those boots on the way in and out. Um, so try and mitigate moisture from the get-go. That's the thing that I've noticed makes the biggest difference with keeping my feet warm. Okay. And do you ever use, uh, like, toasty toes or um, hot hands? I I have tried both, and, and I will say, like, putting a, some hot hands inside my, my grizzly mitts, um, like, for example, um, on a four-wheeler in British Columbia uh, trying to trap wolves. Like, I've never been that cold. So, yeah. I mean, that, that was one thing that I did. I was like, huh, this is, uh, this is pr- pretty nice here. <laughs> my hands are not cold. Yeah, you know, I have. Um, it, it, for me, it depends on the length of sit. Um, if it's in morning or an evening sit and it's those brutal, you know, zero or less degree temps, um, I think it can be pretty effective. Um, the problem, the one thing that you want to, or that I try and pay attention to is again, that, that moisture, that sweat. Mm. So if you're trying to do an all day sit and you pop those things in your boots, say first thing in the morning, um, you may get three or four hours out of them, but likely your feet are going to start sweating 
during that time, which if you're climbing down on the stand at 10 or 11, it's not a big deal. Um, but it makes for a miserable afternoon if your feet get sweated up and then uh, your toasty toes mm-hmm. run out of juice and you're sitting there with sweaty feet in the bitter cold. So that's kind of been my experience. I, I base whether I use those um, off the length to sit and then also how how cold it actually is. Um, and then back to your comment about hands. Um, for this hunt that you're specifically describing, because it is a muzzleloader hunt, um, I love the grizzly mitts for those nasty cold hunts um for rifle or muzzleloader specifically because what i can do is i can run like the talus fingerless gloves inside of there yeah and they have the nice wrist strap on there so on my on my non-shooting hand i can leave that glove on all day and then when i do actually need to shoot it's real easy to pull the glove off um and not worry about it falling or sticking it in a pocket or whatever it might be when it can, comes time to make that shot so i think that's a great option for your hunt next week yeah, I mean everybody's lost a glove that fell out of their pocket, right? When they went to whether it was to, to to get the their firearm up or you know get the glass up, whatever it is. I mean, you, you get back to camp and you're like, oh crap, I don't have my glove. Uh, that, and that's that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, what's even What's even worse is when it falls out of your pocket and you don't get a shot, and then you're stuck up in the stand at the predicament of do you go down and get it or you try and tough it out. <laughs> uh-huh. Oh yeah. 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 Um, well, let's do this. Let's take a quick break. We'll come back. Uh, I want to talk about hunting big, mature whitetail specifically. Uh, you're cool to stick around for a few more minutes? Absolutely. Perfect. And that segment was brought to you by another piece of gear that I rely on going in and out of my whitetail setups. That, of course, the Pulsar Axion Handheld Thermal Monocular. It's got all the great features you come to expect from a Pulsar Thermal without the big price tag. Plus, it's literally the size of a cell phone. So, if you're tired of hearing a doe snort wheeze at you as you're heading to your stand, well, you know what to do. Check out the Pulsar Axion. You can find it at PulsarNV.com. We'll be right back with more from First Light's Greg Farrell. You're listening to the Lone Star Outdoor Show. Down at the end of the rainbow, my pretty little pot of gold, are there violins playing or is it just me? Hey y'all, spring is here, and that means a lot of things, but specifically, your lawn is about to become your own worst nightmare. That's why I use JC's Landscaping. They do everything from lawn and landscape maintenance to fertilization and weed control. New premium sod installations. Hey, you need a French drain? I had to have them put in a French drain a couple years ago. They do that too. Landscaping updates, makeovers, stone borders, patios, and much more. Serving the North Dallas and surrounding areas, you can find them at jclandscapingllc.com and tell them cable sent you. Howdy folks, I'm Lee Hoffbear for Hoffbear's Outdoor Superstore in Gulfway, Texas. I hope you're enjoying the Lone Star Outdoor Show. We've been a title sponsor for a number of years now, and we're proud to be a part of it. I'd also like to thank you for making Hoffbear's once again the number one Polaris dealer in Texas. This is Stephen Ranella. Thanks for listening to the Lone Star Outdoor Show. There's a little Bela Fleck bringing us back on the Lone Star Outdoor Show. Big Country, the name of that one. And that song specifically almost cost me my first job in radio. (laughs) I'm Cable Smith, by the way. And I've told that story before. But yeah, my first on-air gig uh, was at the campus radio station at North Texas. And the program director 
Apparently he didn't like the fact that I played that song every single day. What am I going to do? It's a jazz station. Uh, I found something with a banjo and a, and a cool group, so <laughs> I think he ended up hiding that CD from me. Um, anyway, thanks to Dallas Safari Club, our title sponsor. Thanks to you guys for being here as we are talking big whitetail bucks with First Light's Whitetail Product Line Manager, Greg Farrell. And we'll continue that discussion momentarily, but first, this segment brought to you by Lone Star Beer. When you finally place your tag on that big buck that's been looting you all season, there's no better way to celebrate than with an ice-cold Lone Star Beer. Lone Star Beer, the national beer of Texas. Well, let's pick it back up here with Greg Farrell, who was nice enough to stick around through the break. Certainly appreciate it, brother. Yeah, no, this is great. I mean, I could sit here and talk whitetails all day and, and we've talked about some of the gear um that that first light has pioneered specifically for um whitetail hunters and you know keeping whitetail hunters in mind something that you guys have taken by the horns so to speak over the last couple of years and, and that's going to continue moving forward what i want to talk about now though is how to kill these big mature bucks um and we'll start with the let's start with the all day sit because that uh, that's not something that I've done a lot of until the last couple of years. Like last year when I went to Illinois, it was like um, they they had a great example. They said, "We'll come pick you up midday if you want, but here's a picture of a guy in a tree stand. Here's a picture of the empty tree stand at 11 a.m. and a 200-inch deer walking by, <laughs> <laughs> right where he was sitting, and someone else yeah. shot that deer like a week later." Um, but so, you know, I, of course, said, well, I'm not I'm not getting out of the stand then. If, uh, if that's what you guys recommend, then that's what we're going to do. And and, I've, and now that I've, I have this little property, 25-acre property uh, here in North Texas, and you think about going in and out of a place that's so small, for me, it's just not it's not worth it um, to, to add that, uh, you know, put more sin on the ground, make a bigger commotion, risk getting seen, smelled, whatever. So I've really incorporated the all-day sit into the uh, repertoire this season. I will say this, though. I don't like it. I'm not going to lie. Uh, <laughs> it's uncomfortable. Oh, it, it is. It's it's mentally, for me, more challenging than it is physically. I don't know about you. Definitely, definitely. I, I couldn't agree more. I mean, for me, the all-day sit, it's it's a timing thing. You know, there's, there's a certain time of year where I'm doing it, and realistically throughout the season, my goal is always to mitigate pressure mm-hmm. and to leave a little sign of presence in any of the properties I hunt. Um, so as the time of year changes, the way I hunt and the amount of time, whether it's evenings, mornings, all days changes as well. Um, for me, the all day sit comes into play, you know, basically beginning of November. So for that early stage of November into the second week, any day that I can, um, I'm going to sit sun up to sundown. And to your point, no, it's, it's not fun. It's a grind. I mean, you do three or four days of that even in a row. Um, and you're, you're pretty toast, which kind of seems counterintuitive. It's like, oh, you're doing a sitting all day, but just mentally being alert and keeping yourself in a positive place. Cause there's a lot of all day sits where you don't see anything during those lunchtime hours as we call it. Mm. Um, yeah. but during the rut, when things are fired up, I've had a lot of encounters during that time. And especially that time of year, it only takes 15 seconds and that can change your season. And what I've found, the more time that I've spent in the whitetail woods and grown as a whitetail hunter is really my success is always directly related to time in the stand. So 
you know, that comes back to gear in terms of like, do you have the appropriate gear to keep you in the stand? Um, but then it also comes down to that commitment where it's like, yeah, it'd be nice to go in and have a bowl of chili for lunch and so on and so forth. But there's 0% chance I'm going to get a look at that mature deer sitting in the house eating chili or you whatever. You can't kill them from um, the couch, Greg. That's right. Exactly. That's right. Exactly. Yeah. But, but I, yeah, it's tough. It's challenging, but I think the word I like to use is monotonous. It's like looking at the same damn thing over and over again, hoping that something's going to change, you know. Yeah. And uh, and like you said, trying to stay alert. And you know, how many five-hour energies and and alpha brains are going to take <laughs> in a day? You know, what's the what's the what's the doctor recommended uh, limit there? I don't know, but I probably passed it a couple times this year. That's for sure. Um, yeah, totally. And and people, I think there's a misconception that human urine like affects deer movement. It, it, they've done tons of studies in Texas, uh, and have figured out that it doesn't. I mean, you can pee right. You don't have to take a Gatorade bottle to pee into. I don't know what you do. I don't just pee on the ground, and it doesn't seem to affect anything. Yeah, it's. I haven't had any issue with it. I think, but to your point, there's a bunch of studies out there that I think it's like 10 minutes or something like that. There's no biological difference between what's left from human urine and any other type of urine. Yeah. Um, if I can, you know, I honestly, I still carry a pee bottle in and depending on the situation, um, we'll use it. But a lot of times I'm more concerned about mitigating how much movement I'm making, um, yeah. than actually worrying about where I pee too much. Um, if it's possible, I'll still do the old pee in the bottle, but definitely not opposed to, um, not if, peeing in the bottle if I don't need to or don't have to. Yeah. Well, the, the, that is not the case, though, with uh, number twos. I've, you know, the studies <laughs> do not support that. So uh, that is the only time those all-day sits that I've ever, you know, that I have to come down. is like, if that happens, well, then well, you just got to get down and take care of it. Um, but, uh, yeah. And then also, um, let's talk about your experience chasing, like, specific deer. Because I've got yep. this one that's got me all kinds of screwed up this season. Uh, probably about 175 inch, uh, 11 point with a couple of kickers, and it would certainly be the biggest buck that I would have ever, you know, taken with a bow, um, or or a rifle for that matter. And he is, you know, it's 25 acres, so he's not living on the property. He comes through. He was on there every day for the last week of October. You know, um, his pre rut pattern. Yep. And he was coming out daylight hours, and I had set up what I thought was a perfect pop-up to uh, to ambush him. And all the other deer, you know, they filtered through, you know, along this trail. I had a creek as my, uh, you know, to my back as my boundary, like literally like 10 yards, and then a bunch of thick brush. Mm-hmm. And again, okay, no deer's going to go through this thick stuff. They're going to come, they're going to, it's going to, it's going to funnel them in front of the pop-up. Well, on November 1st, uh, here, here comes, and I knew it was a buck because I could hear the the, uh, the trees, you know, it was the antlers hitting the trees. Um, yeah. Wasn't quiet like the does that would come through. He didn't really seem to care about it. Well, he walked, what do you think he did? He walked right behind that pop-up. <laughs> Smelled me. Of course. And I did not have another daylight picture of that deer until November 28th. Now, he'd been around, yeah. you know, nighttime. I mean, he was pretty much nocturnal. But, yeah, he, he got educated real quick. And I have spent since then countless days in the stand just, but I feel like I'm just beating my head against the wall. I don't know if you've had that experience where you've gotten busted and then I'm not saying it's church, but I sure feels like it. Oh, definitely. Um, I've definitely had that experience. I think when you start to 
really focus on killing mature deer and especially choosing one mature deer. Um, what I've found is you get one, maybe two chances a year on them, which, you know, a lot of times if you get busted that one time, that may be your chance. So again, it kind of goes back to just, and it sounds like you were, I mean, exactly the way you set up is probably the way I would have gone about it as well. But those big mature deer are unpredictable. There's a reason they get to be as old as they are. And, you know, I think it goes back to mitigating your presence early and waiting until the time is right and hopefully catching them when they trip up. Um, so whether that's, you know, that all day sit in the first couple of days of November, if they haven't smelt you yet or seen you yet and are still in a predictable pattern and a little messed up chasing does or, you know, even early season, um, while they're still in a summer pattern, I've actually had some pretty good luck just because they are so predictable um, and nobody's been in the woods for, you know, nine months or whatever it might be, depending on your time of year. Yeah. But yeah, it's, they're, they're wily critters and exactly what you described is what I've had happen to you. You get your one or two chances a year, hopefully, and yeah. hopefully in the right spot at the right time, you can make it count. Well, I don't even know if I'd call that a chance because it was still, it was 30 minutes before legal. Yeah. I, I okay. got in that pop-up and I'm like, okay, this is, I know he's been in this area because I have a lot. This is embarrassing, kind of embarrassing to admit it, but I have 10 cameras on the 25 acres, and five of them send live updates to my cell phone. So if he's there, I pretty much know, right? You know. Yeah. Um, but and I, why do I have all those cameras? Because now I'm trying to the point where I'm I just trying to figure out where he's accessing the property because I've totally got to change the game plan. Um, he avoids – I have one free choice feeder and one for my north wind setup, and then I have a uh, – a south wind setup where I just hand corn. He mm -hmm. never goes anywhere near those spots. He avoids yeah. them like the plague. And I don't know. Can yeah. you guys bait in Wisconsin? We cannot. Okay. So we we've had um, um, we've had about of and obviously it's becoming worse and worse. But we definitely have CWD in the state. Yeah. Um, so that you know initially it was specific counties that baiting wasn't allowed, and then they kind of have added to that scent. So all the places, yeah, where I hunt um, in the state, we cannot in terms of trying to mitigate passing of CWD. So uh. um, to your point, though, even when we could, I never really did um, because I kind of had the same experience. It was like I could get a bunch of deer, you know, people I hunted with or, you know, people that hunted close to us, they could get a bunch of deer um, near those bait sites, but it was never the ones that, you know, we were looking to kill or that I was trying to arrow. So, yeah. um, definitely when I'm looking at mature bucks, I'm trying to catch them on patterns, you know, in the early season, if that's between feeding and bedding or then into, and that's true for late season as well, but then in the middle of the season during the rut, you know, I'm really hunting those big mature bucks, um, on their routes to check doe bedding. Um, mm -hmm. is where I've had the best luck and typically try and set up when I'm, I'm looking for that one deer. Yeah. Well, and, and going back to that, uh, that morning where he, he busted me. So I never, I never, per, I never physically saw him. It was still dark. Right. Um, yep. but I had a camera on that trail that he came down and after that sit was over, I, was, I went and looked, I was like, Oh damn it. I was like, the, you know, what I thought was true was true. And, uh, yeah. Yeah. And so it's been, uh, after that, it's been, he's, he's here, you know, once a week, it's all nighttime until literally until the 28th, um, which had him one time out cruising and had him on three different cameras. He was definitely looking for does. So I'm yep. thinking our, our second, uh, estrus cycle, you know, the does that weren't bred, 
originally I think they've come are coming back into estrus and that's probably was out why he was out cruising. I, I was I am I have been kind of surprised though because I have killed not so much at feeders but when hand scattering corn um I've had luck killing deer in those places. On 25 acres my goal is just if if I keep feed out I'll have does if I have does I'll have a buck. Definitely. Yep, definitely. So, but uh but yeah, this one he's he's the last thing I think about when I go to sleep. I wake up usually to to take a leak in the middle of the night and I'm checking my phone looking to see if he's been there even though it's the middle of the night. Uh I don't know. He's got me he's got me all kind of uh like I said boogered. Have you had one specific deer do that to you? Well, typically every year there's one that keeps me awake at night and up to early in the morning, but yeah, I've definitely had a few over the years that I have not been able to capitalize on and have just not been able to figure out. Um, a few of them have got killed by neighbors. Um, a few of them have got killed by buddies on the property, which is almost as exciting as doing it yourself, yeah. um, putting a game plan together and having somebody come through on it. But I've definitely been been there before. I'm kind of in the same situation as you this year. I have not actually – we get one buck tag. Mm-hmm. Um for archery equipment in Wisconsin. And I have not punched mine yet. Um, and there are a few running around and that's the reason why I've been as picky and kind of holding out as long as I have this year, but I am definitely not, not done. We luckily get to hunt uh, into January with archery equipment. So I'm kind of transitioning from our rifle season just got over, obviously, you know, most of the rut activity is done. So I'm now transitioning into a late season plan um, for trying to connect with one of those big boys once they go back onto their feeding patterns, trying to replenish themselves after the rut here. So mm-hmm. still game on for me as well. Well, and, and I'll say this, um, talking about their feeding patterns, that, that buck, so when I had him on camera, let's uh, say the first, I think he was there the, the that evening, the second maybe, and then he was just gone for a couple of weeks and then, sporadic nighttime photos until the 28th of November he looked like he lost 30% of his body weight in that in that month's time frame he went from the swole roided out just impressive beast to what I would I don't know if you've ever hunted in the Texas hill country or seen the deer there but now he looks like he's a scrawny 140 pound deer but he's carrying around this massive uh headgear you know it's amazing to me every year um, how the body size of those deer change, honestly, even from late or early season, you know, as they ramp up into the rut and kind of swell up um, and how much weight they put on. And then, you know, after a couple of weeks of running around chasing does, yeah, they just look, I mean, it looks they look like totally different animals. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. Sure. Absolutely. Absolutely. Sure. I kind Which, of felt bad for you know, them, but... to, to that point, I think is another time that kind of gets overlooked, you know, this, later season stuff if you can handle you can handle the cold and you have you know you still have standing crop or you have a good transition between bedding and feeding um if it's a low pressured area and they get to settle down a little bit um you know if you have a rifle season in your state or whatever it might be um it's another great time to kind of catch them on a more predictable pattern and i've had some good luck this time of year with that yeah well and there's no other than the feed i put out i mean they're they're not really these deer use this uh, this property that I have as a travel corridor. They travel up and down that creek. That's okay. essentially my my north boundary. And so I don't know. It's been interesting for me to not have like we don't. I don't even have any acorns on. So trying to figure out when they're moving. You know, it's been. I had them for that week of the pre rut, and that was, you know, that like I said, 
when he smelled me, that was probably my best chance to get him because he was mm-hmm. – he, what he was doing was checking a mock scrape. I made a mock scrape, and uh, he was there just about every day checking it, and uh, but all different times. And, and I think I had about a three- or four-day period there where he was most likely to slip up during the daytime. So yeah, hopefully though I will I will catch him using the property to access you know a feeding area. Uh, so who knows? Maybe but, uh, yeah. I mean, hopefully you get to go to Illinois next week and have a good experience there. Keep some pressure off your your small parcel there, and then get a crack at him once you get back. Yeah, yeah. Well, and and it had me to the point where I I said, you know, I just need to go duck hunting and do something different. Yeah. That's where I was last week. That's where mentally I was like, no, I got to get the dog out and we just got to just get away from this and leave this be because it's, it's, I don't know, hunting's fun. And at that point I was like, this is just work at this point. (laughs) Yep. Well, you make, you make such a good point too. I think we all get caught up in the, especially during that pre-rut and rut time. It's like, gotta be in a tree. You gotta be in a tree. You know, you do, it comes down to time in the stand, but if you're not having fun with it, you know, take a day off, go do something else, whether it's chase other critters or, you know, something else you enjoy. And I find that I'm much more motivated and more concentrated and kind of dialed in if I need to do that than if I keep forcing it. So mm-hmm. I think that's another good tip for this time of year for a lot of folks. Yeah. Yeah. No doubt about that. Um, so I guess as we are wrapping things up here, Greg, what is the one that means the most to you that you had to you know, really put in the time and, and try to outsmart and, and finally, you know, you got it done. Yeah, no, I, um, so I'm kind of a weirdo in this way. I've never actually put a tape to any deer that I've shot. Uh Um, I have a pretty good idea of what they are before I shoot them just off of estimating, but I'm kind of a big proponent of the excitement scale. Um, if it's a deer that gets me fired up, um, I'm going to pull the trigger on it. I obviously try and chase mature deer. Um, but whether it's a you know 135 inch deer or 170 inch deer, if it's if I know it's a mature deer and it fires me up, um, that's something I'm gonna wanna lay my hands on that season. And to your point, um, a lot of that comes from from history. So I think the the probably the most fun and most memorable deer that I've had a chance to hunt and lay hands on was actually an early season deer, um, ended up killing them, I think three days into the season, Hmm. like September 18th, um, which doesn't seem like a lot of history, but actually the history of that year came from all summer. So this parcel that I was on, it's a, it's about 130 acres, but only probably 35 of it is actually huntable. Mm -hmm. Um, the rest of it's just big open ag. So it's very similar to the way your 25 sets up. Um, the way it kind of sounds like it's very much a travel corridor, yeah. but there's not deer typically living on it. Mm-hmm. And for whatever reason, um, based off of, you know, <laughs> I'm the same as you. I think I had eight cameras on that property um, <laughs> during the summer and leading up to the season. Um, for whatever reason, that deer decided to make, you know, that 30 acres that I could hunt his home um, during the like basically June, July and August. Um, I had them on there very consistently. And because of that, honestly, it changed my preseason, um, quite a bit. And really typically that's a farm where we kill some does early, um, fill the freezer up and then stay out of there until the rut, knowing that they're going to be coming through there and traveling through there. But I ended up putting all my eggs in that basket, knowing what I'd seen him do both on camera and scouting throughout the entire summer. Um, and then 
put a plan together and yeah I think it was my second sit of the year third day of the season ended up shooting that deer at 12 yards um wow. like I said the 18th so I think it was like two days or three days after the season opened which was pretty cool you spend three months thinking about it and, <laughs> together and it happens it's a pretty good feeling because it typically doesn't go down that way <laughs> oh no hell no yeah. I mean, that's uh yeah. yeah those are few and far between now are you hunting out of a tree stand most of the time yeah I mean pretty much a hundred percent of the time I'm out of a stand. The last few years I've adopted um, the saddle as well, depending on where I'm sitting. I still hunt quite a bit of public. Um, I enjoy trying to figure out some of these public parcels um, and getting into spots where other hunters are actually pushing deer into. Um, and depending on how far I'm going in and what the trees are like there, um, I'll incorporate the saddle as well. But um, I would say about 99% of the time I'm from an elevated position. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've um, been messing around with the ghost blind here. Once, uh, yeah, I've sat in the other stand so many times, and and going back to trying to figure out where he's accessing the property when he is on the property. Uh, I think I've yeah. got that dialed in, and uh, I don't want you know I don't want to go in there and hang another stand and make a big uh, commotion because I think he beds relatively close to that spot where he comes on. Uh, mm-hmm. So I think the I'm just gonna. I don't know if you know what a ghost blind is, but uh, I do. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's uh, that's kind of where where I'm at. Is I gotta wait for a southwest wind. I mean, everything has to be perfect. The stars have to align. But we shall that's see. Fun it's fun and it, frustrating. Right? Well, good stuff, man. I certainly appreciate it. Um, are you coming to Dallas Safari Club? Um, we will be there. Um, we're still kind of working out who's going where in terms of shows. So I'm not sure if I will be at that one or not. Well, good deal, brother. Hope that uh, you fill that tag and and uh, be sure to send me a picture. Yeah, same to you, man. I appreciate you having me on and taking the time today. Yep, enjoyed it. Thanks, Campbell. All right, there he goes. First light whitetail product line manager, lifelong whitetail hunter, Greg Farrell. Awesome stuff there. And that segment brought to you by All Seasons Feeders and the Big Chingone Deer Blind. I've told you all before, uh, but let me reiterate. If you want to introduce your family, your kiddos, into hunting, they don't want to be cold. They don't want to sit in a tree stand like Greg and I, beating our heads against the wall, trying to arrow that big buck. No, they want to be warm and dry. My kids are seven, five, and five, and nothing beats the big chingone. I can fit all three of them plus the wife in the blind. It's uh, It's got cup holders. It's got carpet. And make no mistake about it, kids are noisy. So the big chingone eliminates a lot of that sound pollution as well. Check it out. It's the big chingone. You can find it at allseasonsfeeders.com. Unfortunately... Man, just looking at the clock, we got to go. Got to get out of here, flat out of time. Thanks to both of our guests today, Brian Lynn of Sportsman's Alliance, Greg Farrell of First Light. We will do it again, same time, same place next week. Uh, Thanks to our sponsors for making this show possible. Thanks to you, the listener, for being a part of the Lone Star Outdoor Show. Until then, I'm Cable Smith saying, y'all have a great week in the outdoors. Young and then we're old And long run